0: This is David Colosi with another Napping Wizard session. On April 2nd, 2021, I spoke with Farida Sakaifar about her exhibition, You Are in the War Zone, at Trotter and Scholar in New York's Lower East Side and her residency at Coda Lab in Brooklyn. The presentations introduced several of her visual experimentations from the last decade as a kind of survey. Having known Farida since 2013, I take the cues from the exhibition as opportunities to go off script into the past and future of her work, and how she's handled the remarkable year that 2020 has been. Farida Far, Did I pronounce that right?
1: Yeah, you did good. Yeah.
0: All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's good. I, I take a crack at it.
1: It's that stressful moment before saying my name for everything. <laughs> yeah. I get it. No, you did good. Thank you.
0: So I'll start by saying I would be an acorn.
1: What does that mean?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well you started your uh, heckler thing on public space and you asked everyone what they would be in public oh, space
1: oh <laughs> nice yeah okay and why
0: i think it'd be an acorn you know it starts on a tree and then it falls and either a squirrel takes it and eats it or gets stepped on and pushed into the ground or and it either something else grows from it or the squirrel eats it and shits it out or has babies i don't know or it just gets ignored i don't know huh just kind of this cycle of life thing i think
1: that's very interesting nice yeah
0: i forget what yours was
1: i think i said i want to be the tree that tree that people know about like locals know about it so they're going to be like let's see there you know let's hang out there or let's you know
0: the meeting place
1: Yeah, I never had that tree in my life, but I always think that's a cool one, you know, just having that identity of that street (laughs) or that neighborhood, and people know you, and only locals know about you, so I don't know. (laughs) And it's also a tree. Trees are pretty amazing. I think they're one of the most generous things you can find on the planet.
0: Yeah, definitely. They keep giving.
1: Yeah, they're interesting.
0: Yeah, they consume a lot, but they also produce a lot, too, so yeah.
1: Yeah, and when they die, they just give it all to others. You know, it's like I'm not taking anything with <laughs> <Right. laughs> me. Giving it up.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, that's a fine place to start with trees and acorns. So uh, the show at Trotter and Scholler. I think I've mentioned this before. It's like a survey, but like a survey of relics. that point you to the larger projects. Like Mute, you have the table. I
1: got it, the
2: carpet.
0: You have the carpet, but you don't have the screens. And the video is on, a portion of that video is on the monitor throughout the show. It seems like there's a few examples from different bodies of work. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel about it as a survey
1: that was the intention, what Claudia Robert, the curator of the exhibition, thought about from the very beginning. She offered a survey exhibition, and we had a conversation about my work since 2010, 2011. And as I was explaining the work and reviewing the narratives, we had the pieces that we were interested in, and in the space we figured out what we're including. But we knew that we're not gonna put the whole installation of Mute because that's impossible in the space and just it not make sense. But then with the other series, that was also a fun <laughs> moment of selection that we decided how many of each we're including in the series and what we're taking out and how we're working with the space.
0: And what was the residency at CODA? Was it figuring out the exhibition?
1: No, I'm actually starting the residency with them now. This is also part of the residency. So they offered the show and we started talking about it and then residency came out of it as a way to complete this experience with CODA. Yeah. And it's been pretty amazing in terms of professional development, figuring out how it works as artists in different stages in our lives. We are learning new things and we have bigger demands. Having that support from CODA, that was pretty awesome. And then they asked me if I'd like to continue working, and I think that's a good excuse to continue making and working during the pandemic, otherwise, you know, I'll go back in my cave and just, (laughs) you know, (laughs) stay down there. But this way, I guess I'll continue being in a conversation about the things that's been happening in my mind and I've been thinking about them as projects. And that pushes me to actually start them and start you know executing those ideas and experiment with those ideas rather than you know just sitting back and be happy in my brain <laughs> yeah <laughs> or miserable I don't
0: know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a mix of both for sure. yeah. I mean, I just found myself consuming a lot during this past year, whether it's reading or watching or learning or, or I mean, I've yeah. produced some things, but it, it's been a lot about consumption,:
1: yeah, the same. I made something at the end of 2020 and it was mainly because I had an eye surgery and I thought my experience before and after is going to be different. And I was like, I got to make this like what I'm seeing right now. I have to just sit down and make a collage. And I guess the two days before my surgery, I sat down and I made a few collages and then stopped making. But that was the only thing that I actually (laughs) Produced. Not produced, but like whatever art is, like visual experimentation, let's call it. (laughs)
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. So since you brought up the collage with the anterior chamber is deep and quiet, is that a fabric pattern or something?
1: Yeah, that's the one that I said I made in relation to my world before my surgery. And yes, the fabric is a hospital gown that I took after one of my visits. And I have one from my surgery too that I'm thinking about using. <laughs> I literally stole the hospital <laughs> gown. <laughs> I didn't state it, but it was a weird moment. Of, Can I have the gown? Like, what?
2: <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> yeah i guess i'm thinking about a couple of things i'm experimenting with seeing in a digital format you know experimenting with the tools that i have to see how i can imitate my visual experience having both cataract and glaucoma and i've been enjoying this experience of seeing and unseeing and understanding how Seeing is subjective and claiming that I can see. But after surgery, realizing that, oh, my way of seeing the world has nothing to do, you know, how other people are seeing the world. Because most of the things are blurry or murky or combination of both. And sometimes it's blurrier, sometimes it's less blurry. And also the experience of color. After my surgery, I discovered (laughs) some new tone. (laughs) You know, it was like some shades and some colors that I was like, oh, wow it's actually there and you can see it and it's really cool. But also like depth of field, that's another thing that I discovered after my surgery. So these are like the things that I've been seeing before fixing my eye and I actually fixed only one. I have to do another surgery on my left eye, but that was my way of preserving that experience if possible. And also the other thing that I'm interested in discovering is how I can play with pixel and experiment with that and use that as sort of a pigment maybe calling it digital painting i don't know if it's a digital painting but it feels like painting but it's not a painting you know yeah <laughs> which kind of became more serious the other piece the title is when pulling down a monument a chain works Better than a rope the title is from an interview between jonah bronrich and erin thompson erin thompson said that in the interview and she was talking about what is a good way of taking down a monument in order to preserve it and have less damage. So I took that from that article that after I made the piece I was like that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah and the imagery in that one it seems like that one you were thinking more about composing an image.
1: Yeah this is A collection of images from different moments that different monuments were toppled around the world. I think the oldest is from 1979, uh, from the Iran revolution, Mm -hmm. toppling the monument of Shah. And then moving forward, there are topplings from Ukraine, Iraq, and one from 2015 in South Africa. And then there are start from 2020 the topplings of confederate monuments around the country.
0: Yeah, I think I remember when that was happening, there was a diagram going around of how best to topple a monument. Not to teach people how to do it, but just to say there's a method to it.
1: Yeah, I never read it that way. I, I guess maybe I have some sarcasm in choosing yeah. that title too. I think what was interesting for me is seeing how it's being framed in the media and how they're talking about you know, these moments of public intervention in public space and using the word vandalism. And, you know, I'm thinking about monuments as this really stable representation of a piece of history or power in a public space that is supposed to be intact. The only thing that can cause any damage on it is the weather. It's not coming from human interaction. And if this is supposed to represent the people and their history, then there's that question of where is that intervention, where is that presence, you know, because narratives change, you know, the narratives become more complete as we learn more and understand how to be more inclusive in our narratives. And in that line, this form of an intervention has to be preserved rather than erased, because that completes the story, that gives it the context. So in response to that, I was thinking about this piece as a way to bring in all these moments, the action, the moments that happens during this act of toppling and preserve that in one image and see how it looks like. That's mainly what I was thinking about, interested in the chain of human body, just like zooming in these images and looking at the facial expressions, body languages. It's a suspended moment of action that captures a lot of things there is looking at every single face there is something to read which is my reading of that image but there's a lot to look at and there's a lot to imagine and think about when looking at these images and kind of reflect on so that was for me a way of bringing it all together and also like as i'm zooming in images are becoming pixels and pixelation becomes a very dominant factor if it's an older image, like images from the toppling of Saddam Hussein Monument in Iraq, images are way more pixelated in comparison to images from 2020. So I'm interested in the idea of preserving a story with our cell phones, which is happening. Photography as this medium, we all have access to and we're using to document our everyday life. And this becomes the imagery of our time, the collection of our time. And if we think of it as a form of preserving stories and preserving history and in relationship to photography and the promise of photography, uh, the negative as a grain base that is a negative that you can enlarge and you can always just look through in the light to see what's on it in comparison to digital images that you can read on a device. And it's just information. I've been thinking about a lot of different aspects of that. And the origin of this idea of pixelation of the image over time came from Iraq Plus 100. That's a collection of short stories by different Iraqi authors imagining Iraq and the world in 100 years. And in one of the short stories, they need to look at images to figure out something about the past and... They find the archive, but they can't really find anything on the images because the images are too pixelated and they make fun of us. And they say, you know, haha. they thought they know how to preserve and they thought they have like the highest quality images. But look at that. Look how dumb we were. (laughs) 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 And that's actually an interesting thing to think about. And if it's about the quality, who will have that archive of higher quality images and who wouldn't, you know, what are we going to see on the Internet 50 years from now?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, too, to talk about it in relation to monuments, because like you said, you know, these bronze monuments, their pixels aren't going to get worse over time, you know, of the actual object. But what's interesting is that the understanding of the narrative of the object does change over time. For example, the one of Teddy Roosevelt at the American Museum in Natural History, that one... It's not down yet, but for 40 years or more, people have been trying to have it removed. And then last June, the mayor and the museum agreed to take it down, but still it's been eight months and it hasn't come down. So when you're talking about pixels and photographs that were taken a while ago, and now people see them 40 years later, it's like, well, wait, what's happening in this image? We don't know anymore. It's kind of the opposite with the sculpture. It's like, well, we know exactly what's happening in this Statue, but we kind of want to change it. The other thing is that longevity of those statues, nothing says it has to stay there forever. Sure. I mean, it, it can, but nothing says that it should. As someone who works in archives at museums and sees a lot of things in back rooms, I'm always like, well, wait, why does that one have to stay out there the whole time? Why can't something take its place?
1: Yeah, right. and who chooses that? Who chooses that piece to be out there? There is some benefit in that selection.
0: Yeah. Um, And if you think of it in the larger sense of, let's say, like someone like Picasso or Warhol, why did they have to be always these superstars?
1: That's the education, that's the institution, academia, everything that always told us and taught us, no matter what part of the world you're studying art, that these are the legends. And a lot of the understandings of the art and aesthetic is coming from understanding a white male artwork and their practice, and defining that, and that becomes the idol. It's everywhere. Looking at the art histories that I read back in Iran in my education, I read the same things that people study here, in addition to the artwork that comes from the region, Iranian miniature, and Middle Eastern miniature, and paintings, and craft, and history, and all of that. But The standard of the art practice of the education that we are receiving is a copy of Picasso and Pola, European and American artists.
0: Yeah, I see it in the same way. They don't have to be there forever. They could be replaced. It's really a decision to keep them fixed there. The same with Confederate statues. And does it take revolutionary movements to get those to change? It's kind of what's interesting about the period we're in now is because all of those things people are trying to shift
1: i mean think about it now if you go to any museum at this time there are shows by black and poc artists that's really cool
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's about time <laughs> i mean but still there's a long way to go oh yeah sure.
1: absolutely. But, yeah. it's going slowly too slow and too late but
0: I mean, a lot of your work, a lot of the subject matter of your work deals with themes from the Middle East. A lot of it has to do with various wars and the media representation of that. As far as that subject matter, I know you're Iranian and you grew up during the Iran-Iraq War. Tell me, tell us a little bit about you biographically and how it connects to the work if you want to. If you don't want to, we can shut this off.
1: (laughs) No, I can't talk about that. I guess that's my life. So I was born in Tehran, Iran, four years after the war between Iran and Iraq in 1985. So the war started in 1980s, and it led to the death of 500,000 Iraqis and Iranian soldiers and about 100,000 civilians. And it lasted for eight years. It was a really long war in the region. So I guess like from the very beginning, beginning of my life. I've been involved in that conflict. The night that I was born, my mom actually, she had a C-section and they had to take her immediately back home after her surgery because Saddam Hussein was bombing the near hospital at the moment. So immediately right right after the surgery, we came home. And I guess like I have some memories, but they're really vague memories. You know, like one of the things that I remember from my childhood is the conversion of the swimming pool in our courtyard to a bunker and experiencing that and kind of like my dad explaining why like i was like but we're well, can't. We, can, we are not funny yeah, we can't <laughs> no, swim <laughs> we actually need a bunker that's that's the priority yeah um you know the how the architecture the space changed because of that and also like some memories that I don't know if I created them if they're coming from my imagination but like I remember a couple of times that the sirens went off and we had to run you know to the courtyard or downstairs to seek shelter under the stairway it was like that uncertainty more or less I have that in my memories and then I guess the fear has always been there it's Been part of my life and my generation's life, and also like generations to come, not just the trauma of the war, but that fear that the war can happen any moment because we're always living under the threat of the US attacking Iran. Like, there's always that tension in our unconscious. Like, the nearest was in 2020, in January, that we seriously thought the war started and it was like the closest that I experienced that fear that oh shit this is it it's happening yeah um and then you know the war has been always present in the region after the iran-iraq war there was the gulf war and it's not like oh iraq is involved in that war we are fine no it's I don't really see them separated it's you know, war is not really just changing one country, it's dramatic change on one country, but it really changes the narrative and the dynamic of the region mm-hmm. um, and it has some effects on everybody's life and then the U.S. invasion was also like a moment of realizing, oh, shit, it takes 48 hours, actually. Like, that's the um, timing that they're going to give you. And then if they just decide to attack, the world can't stop you. You know, that was like a moment of realization.
0: That's in Um, in Iraq.
1: That was in Iraq. Yeah, Yeah, 48
0: hours in Iraq.
1: Yeah, it was like Iranian Persian New Year. And we were all like sitting together and the war started and, you know. I remember like we had a conversation and we were like, it's another threat, like it's not going to happen. And it actually happened. Hoping that it's another threat, maybe like yeah. you know, lying to ourselves. And also the invasion of Afghanistan, it's two neighboring countries. So it, I experienced having Afghan refugees in the country and seeing how the country changes, people changing, like the refugee crisis, all of that. That's been always, you know, war has been always present in my life. And then coming to the United States, there is a layer of shock that I experienced. And that was the media. I consumed American media back in Iran. Everybody is watching CNN or everybody is, you know, it's there, it's present. But back home, it was a combination of Western media, Iranian media, and bunch of other things and when you come here and all of a sudden realizing oh we don't actually talk about war there is a stigma around that topic you can't just like casually talk about yeah. war and we just casually talk about war you know in Iran it's just like a kid talks about it a grown up talks everybody talks about it yeah and here it's like oh how dare you you even mentioned that I had that experience that somebody was like how dare you you just randomly talk about dead people in the war I'm like are you kidding me you know it's right where does that come from and then like from our narratives from our history from our education everything like that narrative the invasion of iraq the invasion of afghanistan is not present not in the daily conversation and not in our education i'm teaching here in schools yeah
0: here yeah and absolutely here,
1: yeah. and i'm like you're a high school student i don't know anything about the last 20 years of this country and a lot of them are joining the army. Do you actually know what you're signing up for? Do you know what happened not long ago? Mm-hmm. But because that narrative is not part of our education, it's not part of our reality, there is that... I don't want to see there is that glorification of the war because I understand the economy of war and I guess to some extent I understand why people join the army and I understand the social class and I understand you know the benefits of that. But at the same time, I think the narrative that is given to actually recruit for army is an incomplete narrative that is a selection of the whole thing in order to convince. Yeah. Um, so like thinking about all of them, I was like, I guess, and part of it is also anger. I guess like I'm trying to deal with that anger by making these works and I'm trying to digest it and understand it and reflect on it and maybe re-narrate them in my own way and criticize that Mm -hmm. (laughs) what is happening in this video
0: yeah no it's interesting the way you described it it's just such a major shift to come from Iran where it's always threats coming at you and then actually living in war where you come here and the threats are coming from here and you know we're not living in a war zone you know (laughs) as the title of your show is we're not in a war zone in that sense. So yeah, that's gotta be quite a shock. And what year did you come here?
1: 2009.
0: So that was right at the Green Movement. Yeah. Was that Um, part of the decision?
1: No, no, I applied for school before the Green Movement happened and I was back in Iran at the very beginning of it. So when did it start? I don't know it in this calendar, I know it in the other
2: calendar.
1: (laughs) like the day that it started. But it happened end of the spring and then throughout the summer and it was going on for almost a year or even more. But no, it wasn't part of a decision. It happened and then in the middle of that I had to leave and that was also a shift from how I experienced it back there and then coming here and all of a sudden realizing that I'm a secondhand consumer of that narrative and looking at the news i'm searching for information Mm. honestly because what happened during that time was the only information that was leaked out of the country was through amateur filmings and photographies that people on the street did and they were just posting it on social media so it was like the beginning of using social media and the role of social media in public uprisings and movements and it kind of led to the arab spring and the history of that in the middle east but being on the streets and experiencing it first and, and then coming here and realizing that, again, like the way that is being narrated through Western media and comparing it with how it's being narrated by the Iranian government, which is complete denial and the erasure, and then how it's being told by people on the social media and that comparison And then Arab Spring happened and the same thing, you know, following people on Facebook and looking at their posts on social media and then looking at Al Jazeera and then CNN and BBC and New York Times, you know, looking at Iranian media to see how they are framing it and being in this kind of like circus of (laughs) information that the only thing that you can rely on is the information that comes from the people. Um, but that's also, you know, they started to shut down the internet. They started arresting people who were posting things online. So that experience kind of like somehow led me to make a piece out of that, which was Tehran Allow 2011. That I made it in 2011, but that was kind of like a reflection on what happened during the Green Movement, where it ended, and then Arab Spring and where that's going, reflecting on all of that on that piece but specifically using tehran as a surface so it's about over 600 screenshots that i took from google earth and really enjoying that experience that secondhand experience and that was also something i guess i started doing here using google earth as a way to travel and look around the world and see what are the spaces and how they look like so kind of like zooming in and navigating in the city and taking screenshots And reconstructing the map of Tehran in Photoshop by these screenshots, there's a lot of errors happening in that recreation because of the overlaps of the screenshots. But overall, there's an imagery of the Tehran that I knew in 2009 that has changed a lot. Looking back at the PC, I'm glad that I preserved that version of Tehran. Mm -hmm. It changed a lot since then. So I did that, I created a large collage and I photo-transferred that on plywood. I like this process of photo transferring because it's very performative. You have to scrub off the white paper of your print off of the plywood. And in that scrubbing process, if you put too much pressure, you can erase the image. And if you don't put enough pressure, your image is not revealed completely. So there is a balance, but also the movement, it's kind of like drawing. You see the traces of human pressure on the plywood to reveal the image. And then using a jigsaw to cut out the streets that these events happened. And I was thinking about a couple of things. One of them was trying to imitate the government's reaction to this whole movement through the media. Talking about, you know, 300 people came to the street. It's a small thing. We're all fine. We're all safe. There are just looters or what was the word used for it i'm trying to translate it they're like dust i don't know if i'm doing a correct translation right and looking at that and trying to imitate that thinking about how i can show that violence and at the same time there's suppression happening people are being jailed people are being killed people are being arrested so like i wanted to bring that violence visually into the surface of the map and I decided to use a jigsaw to cut out all those streets that these demonstrations happened Mm -hmm. and another reason I thought about taking it out completely because when I was leaving Iran one of the squares so there were like a couple of streets that these protests happened major avenues there was the Freedom Square, Azadi Square that was also a major public space during the revolution. So it carries the public memory and collective memory of a revolution with it. Mm -hmm. That leads to Revolutionary Square, which is very ironic, and then Revolution Street, and to Baliasra Street, which is a north-south major street, to Vanak Square. That was one of the newer public spaces that was occupied by people during the Green Movement. Mm
3: -hmm. And when I was
1: leaving Iran, I realized that they started construction on that square and it used to have a fountain and they were flattening that and in my mind i thought about the erasure of the landscape as a way to erase the public memory of that public space mm-hmm. objects carry memories and when you take it away you erase that completely i also thought about flattening that square as a way to have more control on people uh, rather than you know having a structure and that erasure of that square led me to erase the streets completely, cut them out and take them away. And then in front of the map, there are four sheets of plywood that have rectangular holes in them. And some of them have a screen behind them. And in the screens you can see footage from these streets that these demonstrations happened, but they're completely empty. There's nobody in them, which is very disturbing and uncanny because it's a metropolitan and it's always busy. But I asked my sister, who always collaborates with me, Ashraf Sakhaifah, to go and film the city early in the morning as soon as the sun rises, so there wouldn't be a lot of people. And then I edited so we don't see anybody in them. And in the gallery, there is the sound of the street, everyday life that you hear, but there is no representation of the human body on the street. Mm -hmm.
0: Could you say your sister's name again? You sort of broke up a little bit.
1: Ashraf, (laughs) a.k.a. Ashi Sakhaifah.
2: All right.
0: Just to put some context to this, I was 12 years old when the Iranian revolution was happening and watching that on TV. And the hostage crisis. And I just remember just not knowing what the hell (laughs) was going on. Why was this happening? But the way it was portrayed in the media, I mean, Ayatollah Khomeini was the devil. You were meant to hate this guy. So I was framed by that narrative through the media. But at the same time, I always just knew like, okay, something else is going on here (laughs) that I'm not getting the information for. And... It's taken a long time to get that information. There's a new book that just came out called America and Iran by John Gazvinian, Mm -hmm. which talks about the foreign policy relationship between America and Iran from 1720 to the present. And it's just fascinating to just get that context about everything before 1953. And then at 1953, when Mosaddegh was removed and the Shah was placed and... So, just kind of comparing what you were saying about the media and how when you came here, you were getting media from all different sides. And I feel like I've never had that. I've always had it from the American side, never really had the context. You know, what role is the US really playing in this? What role is other countries in the Middle East playing in this? What role is Israel playing in this? You know, what role is Britain and Russia (laughs) playing in this as they were then? So, I mean, all of your work about narrative and about reframing images is really interesting in terms of coming at it from a different side. And then the other thing, just to kind of end that is when I was working at NYU and when we first met probably six years ago or so, and you were working on acquired from above the present owner and then also the pedal pieces. And I was really interested in both of those pieces when you had a studio at LMCC and I was just like, what's going on in here? (laughs) And it was one of those moments of here's a chance to get some of that narrative that I just haven't been able to get. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: that's what actually first attracted me to your work and with working at NYU. And they have this collection of Iranian modern art from the sixties and seventies from the Shah era. So that was another way to get pieces of this information. So I think with your work for me, but I think for others too, is that you do get this other story that's just not told here, you know? And then something like Halabja, 1988, that piece, you could talk about that a little bit. You're taking these images from narratives, written narratives, but also visual images and reinterpreting them. Could you talk about that a little bit, just in terms of what you're doing with narrative and imagery?
3: My 15-year-old sister and I were in the yard, busy making food for relatives. They were sheltering in the cellar. We were expecting an Iraqi counterattack at any moment. The Iranian Revolutionary Guards and Peshmerga had attacked Iraqi oppositions just outside Halabcha in the past couple of days, forcing Iraqi soldiers to retreat. Residents hid in cellars to seek protection from the artillery shells they were expecting. That could fall at any minute.
1: Halabja 1988 is one of the projects that took me a long time to figure out what I'm doing and how I'm dealing with this subject matter. Um, so a little bit of a back of a story, it's about a chemical attack that happened in 1988 in Halabja, the Kurdish region in Iraq. And it was a chemical attack that was basically, it happened during the closing days of the Iran-Iraq war. And before the use of the chemical weapons on the courts of Halabcha, Saddam Hussein also used chemical weapons on Iranian troops. But the world didn't believe Iran much during that time because Iran was pushed away and everybody was against any support of Iran during that eight years of war.
0: Wasn't the West supporting Saddam at the time? Yeah. Yeah. With weaponry. Yeah.
1: And the chemical weapon also came from the U.S. giving the green flag to Saddam Hussein and being okay with using weapons of mass destruction, you know, doing a genocide, basically. And the chemical weapons, it wasn't just one. It was a mixture of some different chemical weapons that different countries contributed, actually. And it was a test to see what is the after effect of using this sort of a weaponry on people and what they can learn from this experiment. So it happened, and a lot of the documentation that actually exists from that time is coming from the Iran government because the Iranian troops were in the region and they documented that. And also they wanted to have a good documentation to prove the use of chemical weapon in the court against Iraq. Growing up, we were exposed to the footage and the narrative of Halab It was like we would see the anniversary of this massacre on the national television and also... The refugees of Halab Chams were living in the country. So it was like the narrative of people who were actually also living in that country. So in 2016, for whatever reason, this story came back to me. And just thinking about it, it kind of gave me a chill. And I was like, that's just thinking about it years from when it happened and at the same time the chemical bombing in syria was happening so it was kind of like remembering those imagery and thinking about syria at the same time and i was like it's interesting we don't hear about again the lack of the narrative the lack of the presence of the narrative here a genocide happened nobody talks about it and i was like i have to make something like this is with me i've been living with this and i want to create something in relation to that And it came from starting to reading about it and looking at images and collecting images and learning about the incident from both sides. And it's also interesting because it's one of those subject matters that you can find information about it. But a lot of it is also U.S. propaganda or Western propaganda because it was also used as a reason to invade Iraq. So like figuring out which narrative and what direction I'm going and with my understanding and my information, I'm not saying that I know which one, you know, but also like a struggling to understand which narrative is the one that I can trust. And I came across a thesis project by Susan Shorman that is called The Inconvenient Atrocity, the Chemical Weapons Attack on the Courts of Halacha in Iraq. And I found that one of the most useful resources that I could find and As I was reading it and as I was putting it into the context, I started collecting the personal accounts that I would find in these different books and this research process. And as I was collecting them, I was also thinking about what are the ways to actually visualize these narratives because I've never worked like that. I never directly worked from the text. It's like you think about something and you make something. I never directly worked with documentation in this sense. Also as a practice for me as I'm collecting images, I like to, again, zoom in because I think images are very incomplete. Even though they tell us a lot, it's a fraction of a bigger event of something that has a before and after. And I allow myself to imagine that. And it's painful and it hurts a lot, but that's the way for me to understand and imagine what I'm reading. And at the end of the day, I, I have to say, there is no way to understand that. I can't say that I know what that pain is. Yeah. It's impossible to know that. It's impossible to imitate
3: that. At around 10 or 10.30 in the morning, I saw the helicopters flying very close. They were not attacking. There were men inside taking photos and videos. They went away. It was very strange. At 11 it started. I ran to the cellar. We all did. We covered our mouths with cloths. Covered our crying. It felt so tight. By 2 p.m. I didn't hear crying anymore. The bombing eased. It was so quiet. We didn't know why. I could hear pieces of metal dropping without exploding. I walked out of the bunker. It smelled strange heavy like hot garbage but then it was sweet apple then eggs i walked to the barn it was quiet
1: so i was zooming in i was looking at the images i was looking at again body language facial expressions the last moment i'm thinking about the before and after and as i was doing it i started tracing over them And that was also a way for me to mourn, a way for me to look at them, digest them, feel it. And in that tracing, there's an act of erasure for me in order to be able to look at these images again. You know, working with the subject matters, the question is, where is that line that you lose your audience because of the type of the imagery? How much can I show and how much can I tell? Because I'm trying to say it again, but with different ways. So people actually listen, people actually care. So that tracing was a process of censorship, was a process of erasure to keep what is digestible. And then in that engraving process, which is another layer, losing even more details and adding other details on top of it and printing it. And as I was printing, the text was in my mind. So the collages that I made are visual experimentation of the text and the visual and understanding how I can combine them and how I can take out words that can be translated to something different. So that was a study. And then, as I said, you know, there's a lot of before and after that comes from these body interactions, holding each other or hugging each other or carrying somebody or the physical reactions that happen. So this there's a lot of body movements, body pain involved. And I thought about performance as the closest medium that can possibly translate and reenact that. And also dance inherently is a form of torturing the body. You know, dancers are going through trainings and they're perfect but at the same time they are experiencing pain and it was the closest medium that translate that pain
0: they make and, it look easy but it's painful to them yeah, yeah
1: yeah and also like the the paradox between the beauty <laughs> and the ugliness of what is happening the perfect body of the dancer in paradox to the failure of the body after the exposure to the chemical weapon that comes with the collapse of the lung the bleeding of the eye and the loss of the vision collapse of the nervous system, the deformation of the body, the burning of the skin, and thinking about how to use body to translate these into movements. And I collaborated with Isabel Umali, and it was sessions of rehearsal and conversations and reading the text. I had extractions from the text that I bring to the studio and we would talk about it. And Isabel would sketch and just come up with movements and different choreographies. And In that process of conversations and rehearsals editing out the parts that made sense and it was the closest to what we both imagined would make sense and then i thought about film because live performance is an experience but i wanted to have some sort of a permanency in that and i wanted to be able to give a slow motion experience to my audience i thought that time and um, this stretch of this pain can be an additional layer to exaggerate the sensations that one would experience sitting in front of the screen and, you know, mm-hmm. watching this this performance. And also working with sound that I worked with Sado Shahab to create a sound that is specific to the piece, to activate another layer of a sensation and also as a way to, bring everything together as a holistic experience. I feel like the sound really adds the layer that collects all of them, the senses together. That was also a collaboration that came from a lot of conversations and back and forth and talking about sound, talking about the meanings of it the, the instruments and making the piece. And after that, I made all of these because I wanted to make a monument (laughs) about Halabja. I wanted to create a piece that commemorates the people and that experience and exists.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess when I think about Halabja, 1988, I guess in some ways I start to think about it in terms of the blues or in terms of sort of spirituals. These are songs that are about pain and suffering but by making them into songs it's a way to process it you know maybe you could call it healing or something but it's a way to transform this traumatic experience this trauma it retell it in such a way that doesn't make it softer but Maybe the way you said it, it's not digestible, but it's something that you can watch, you can experience and still feel that tension going on between the trauma and a possible healing or something. I guess when I see Isabel dancing in that piece, I get a sense of both of those things.
3: I saw a woman laughing hysterically, yelling, running throughout the road crashing her head into the wall she died soon thereafter
0: like you said the slow motion and also there's a moment where she's slapping her chest and then there's the reading about the woman who's laughing as she's ramming her head into the wall which i guess was an actual experience as a result of the gas so you're hearing that story and you're seeing it in the film but then you're seeing this person dancing and there's tension between those two things where i wonder if that's what the blues does too you know because if you think of spirituals sort of a similar dealing with this trauma i don't know
1: Mm, i never thought about the relationship that you're talking about but i thought about bringing in some references to some rituals in the movement like the moment that isabel is hitting her chest or hitting her back, that was an interpretation of grief that maybe it's more apparent in Middle Eastern culture, like in Iranian culture, using the body, harming the body to cope with the grief and with the pain. But also it had the reference to the experience, as you said, because of the after effects of inhaling the gas and the loss of the nervous system, laughing hysterically, running to the wall to the point of unconsciousness. yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I never thought about it. I'm, I'm trying to think about it now. I'm thinking loud, basically. I can't claim that I made this as a way for the people who actually experienced it to hear.
0: No, yeah, yeah.
1: Because it's just my interpretation. And it's also me sitting miles away in the US and making a piece about that. I guess my only intention is to bring in that narrative and bring it into our conscious that it's actually happened. And we need to remember that. And we need to acknowledge that as a society who actually contributed to that experience.
0: Right, especially when there's really nothing seen about it. Yeah, how many Americans you could ask about Halabja 1988? What image would come to mind?
3: I looked around. My cow was laying on the ground. He was breathing heavily. Birds fell to the ground. The leaves fell off trees. It was a spring. I went out to the street. Everybody was dead. I saw an old man shielding an infant from he cannot know what. An invisible killer. I saw a mother clasping her children in a last embrace. There was a small baby on the ground, separated from her mother. I thought they were both sleeping. I saw some children. They were affected by the chemicals, lost their motor skills and couldn't control their muscles.
2: Uh, Okay, so now we can go to mute because it does move straight into that.
1: Yeah, thinking about mute as where I'm going, I don't know how consciously, as I started the project, but I was thinking about a monument. I wanted this documentation, this interpretation to be a monument for that event. So mute is actually, in my mind, is a monument. In the center, there's a carpet that has a reference to... Afghan war rocks that was like my main source of inspiration and these are the rocks that were made in Afghanistan after the invasion of USSR Um, and that was a way for locals to preserve their narrative and history so you can see an accurate depiction of USSR weaponry on the rocks and it's been made in the region in Afghanistan and also after 9-11 and after the invasion in 2001 They are still making them and they are still preserving the narrative of war in the country through these rocks. So that was an inspiration for me, thinking about rock as craft, as heritage, as a way to locally preserve a narrative visually, and also as something that is passed down in generations. You learn it from your parents and then you pass it to your children. So it's intergenerational craft that is passed down. Thinking about all of those aspects, I also thought about the heritage of war and my way of preserving that heritage as a layer on top of what is happening. So in that carpet, I have the central piece that is a collage that is a combination of actual documentation of the events in addition to my tracings of the events, tracing over those documentations, and then there is the surrounding of that central carpet that is made from wow. chemetal. It's a metal laminate on plywood. And I wanted to use metal as a reference to the weaponry, the army gear. And then the cutouts are the abstraction of the army gear. There's a tank, there is soldier, jet fighters, bombs, gas masks surrounding that central element. And then I used soil as a reference to land, as also a reference to life and death, and also as a reference to livestock, to agriculture, to economy, to basically your being, because that's the foundation of home, of your existence. And the chemical weapon attack, it didn't only have an effect on people, it also killed animals, it also killed the soil. So the after effects is for generations to recover and to, you know to fertile the soil again. So it's not just that moment, it's going on forever. And then the surroundings are projections on four sheets of um, PDLC. That's a material that it's kind of like a plastic, but it goes opaque and transparent depending on the electricity that runs through the screens. The piece was commissioned by the shed. Yes, I was there. (laughs) I was there
0: (laughs) watching it go up. It was great.
1: I was questioning myself, you know, what does it mean to show this piece in this institution? And why should I do that? And how can I actually give a reference to my viewer to remind them that they're standing in a museum, cultural center, and they're experiencing an artwork? I wanted it to be a constant reminder. And that's what led me to the use of this material, because As the screens go transparent, they are see-through, so you can see the rest of the exhibition. And it's a way to disconnect you from that reality. It's self-censorship, again, as a way. So there are three channels of the performance of the same dance that you can see in the Harapcha 1988 film, but with a different edit, and there's one channel that is the actual documentation of the event. And I see the whole piece also as a failure of bringing in all these different mediums into one piece to complete a story, to tell a story. But at the end of the day, it's impossible to tell that story and create any sympathy, create any understanding of the reality of what these people experience.
0: Yeah. I mean, especially because there's so much audience competition in a exhibition, like at the shed, there were so many things happening around that, 25 or 30 artists, all in one space, a lot of them also had media. So in a way, how you were talking about trying to get information from different media sources, if it's CNN, Fox News, Democracy Now!, and then different sources in Iran or in different parts of the Middle East, you're trying to take in all of this stuff and trying to come up with, what can I boil this down to, to come to an understanding? And it seems like this piece in the middle of the shed with all these other pieces happening around it, in a way, it's kind of trying to gain ground to try to create space for itself. But at the same time, it's also kind of erasing itself while it's happening to maybe reveal to the viewer that that's what's going on. You're trying to make sense of this, but it's erasing itself and then building itself up again. That struggle of trying to come to an understanding about not only what's going on with the piece, but also what's going on with the history. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So, yeah, it seems pretty effective in that sense of creating that experience for the viewer.
1: And there's also the element of sound, another element that was also competing in a space um, with other pieces, but we had four channel sound that completed each other as moving through those four corners of the installation. Again, working with Sadra, there are many different instruments. There are many different elements of sound combined together to complete the experience within that boundary, you know? Mm -hmm. And also the element that we didn't expect was the competition that was happening with the other sounds in the space, which in relation to the screen, it also worked out. But that was something that the space imposed on the piece.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of show, you sort of go in and out of such drastically different experiences. I mean, almost any art museum experience, you're going from one extreme to another. Everything has a historical underpinning, but you're going from one thing that has its own terms to another thing that has its own terms. And if you see like 26 things like that, what do I make of any of it? (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Just because, yeah, you know, where you're showing this stuff, if it's in public space or private institutions or and then the audience you're showing it to in the U.S., how conscious are you of the audience that's going to see it? Is that a consideration in either in the subject matter you're presenting or in the way you're presenting it? Or is it just you have the subject matter and you just have to do it?
1: I think definitely I see the change in my work since I moved here. My being in the U.S. led me to make work about war and conflict in the Middle East. And when I'm making it, I'm thinking about my audience, not in a way that I'm categorizing my audience, saying I'm making it specifically for this group of people. Right. But I'm making it for all the consumers of media, more or less. And majority of us are consuming Western media. I don't think that we can deny the presence of United States culture and media in everybody's lives.
3: It's everywhere.
1: So, when I'm making, I'm aware that I'm living in New York City. I'm showing here and maybe in other states or maybe internationally. But first and foremost, I'm living here and this is my audience. And my audience is consuming the media that I'm also consuming. And it's a reflection and also a critique to what I'm consuming here. So in that sense, that's how much I'm aware of who is out there and who is looking at my work. But also it's been shown in other places that the majority of them are Iranians. Like I showed Halab at the Iranian festival, 90% of the audience were Iranian. The conversation doesn't go necessarily to define what is war, what is pain. It's kind of like reflection on the trauma that is part of our collective history. So like looking back at that and remembering that and griefing that or bringing it to the more front layers of our consciousness. That's as much as I'm thinking about who is looking at the work.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a way that you just described that, it was kind of like when you were saying earlier about how in Iran, everyone would just be talking about war, where to show that in a context where the audience is Iranian, It's an opening up to have the conversation again, to return to it where an American audience, I don't know if you could say people are coming to it for the first time, you know, that's kind of the difference between how the audience reacts to that. And I think in a way the People's Tribunal felt like in a similar way, what you were just describing, where it was a series of performances, readings. That would create a collective space to talk about these things together. I don't know if you want to sort of talk about that.
1: Yeah, it was a project that I collaborated with a group of other artists and scholars and curator, um, art historian, with Natasha Priljevic, Shemritli Dinal Adib. We did the performance as part of the exhibition that was happening at 12 Gates Gallery, Clearhold Bill. So People's Tribunal was giving a space and platform to people to reflect on the 28 articles. So the 28 articles is a paper that was written by Australian strategist, David Kilcullen, if I'm pronouncing his name right. So that was used to advise General Petros. I think, mm-hmm. who helped design the Iraq War Troop Search. And it's been used by other militaries like the British and the Canadian and the Dutch military. And it's a series of instructions for every tour. There are things like, you know, the turf or how to engage and um, women and children or how to understand the nuances and the dynamics of the locals and different tribes in order to be more effective in that action. It was a way to respond to that sets of articles that were supposed to be harmless to civilians and targeting the government and being a quick thing, all the promises that the war had itself. So we invited a group of people as witness, as participants. Amina Ahmad, Dinal Adib, Fada Ali, Yarub Al obaidi Nada Al Kuni, Hatif Farhan, Kaza Guchani, Maryam Jahanbin, Luma Jasim, Mohammad Okab, Hussein Simko participated, and each one of them used different mediums. Some people use painting, some people use personal narrative and accounts, some people use personal archive and interviews, some people just share their personal experience being in the region in response to each one of those articles. And it became a space for reflection, for sharing and maybe healing and griefing and experiencing and listening to what they had to say and what they went through and what happened and how it changed their life and how it changed many other people's lives in that encounter and that experience. It was a beautiful project. I think it was an amazing experience, something that there's a big difference between experiencing it in the space being present and the documentation. The documentation is valuable because it's an archive of these responses, but also the personal experience was something that I think was very different.
0: seems to be the crux of artwork i don't know i feel like this year a lot of people have been rethinking about how they're making art and i think this kind of space the people's tribunal is what people are craving more than going to look at a painting or something where you can have a shared experience you can learn some things you can also share some things yourself and it's about building community and being together after a year of not being together you know so there's something really special about that project linking into that with everything that's been happening with COVID-19, with police violence and protests in the streets, all that turbulence in the past year. How are you thinking about that intersecting with your artwork and the subject matter that you've been thinking about that's been rooted in the Middle East, but then you're in two places? Are you putting those things together together? you just kind of letting it happen
1: that's a good question i think they are definitely connected white supremacy racism the power the norms the inclusivity and who gets to say what and the violence these are all experiences that creates this society and creates this country and for me last year 2020 was a year to consume a year to learn and listen I can't say that I didn't know about white supremacy and I didn't know about it. And that's something that I guess from entering the country, you kind of experience. You see that here and there, you know, in different contexts in education, in academia, you walk out searching for jobs. You're just in the society. I worked in different jobs. I worked in retail. I worked in the service industry. I worked in food truck. I worked in restaurants and then working as an educator, working in different schools, mainly in underserved communities, and teaching at CUNY. There are many different occasions that I'm encountering racism, white supremacy, in different scales and in different levels. But last year was a year to actually spend the time and educate myself and listen to the leaders of the BLM movement and learn from them. Because at the end of the day, I don't think what I'm saying is very different from what they are saying. It's a fight to be included in the narratives, to be recognized, to be acknowledged, and to be given a space to be of the being of this country, of the history of this country. So me joining a protest or being an ally and advocate for Black Lives Matter is a way to bring awareness on also the war and conflict and the US foreign policy in the Middle East. I don't see them as two separate things. And I think maybe my role as somebody who is living here is to be that ally, be that advocate, because that's the first step to actually acknowledge the other things that are happening in this country. That's one of our priorities to understand the right of indigenous and black people Mm -hmm. and acknowledge their history and take steps to change that and also along the way acknowledge the narrative of the war and conflict that is happening in other countries, the presence of the U.S. in South America, in the Middle East, in Africa. And if I'm making work about the refugee crisis using the imagery of the Middle East, it's not just about the Middle East, it's also happening at the border in Mexico, you know. It's been a part of the history. When I'm talking about the erasure of the body, there is an inspiration from ASCO Art Collective in East Los Angeles, the way that they are using their body to establish their presence. So there is a lot of overlap, and I can't really separate my narrative from the narrative that's been going on for decades and centuries in this country. You know, they're all yeah. part of each other.
0: Thinking about the whole body of work, it just seems like it's the stuff you have to make that's just in you and it comes out when it comes out in a way. Is that sort of the case?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's about just consuming information and media and news. And as I'm consuming, I'm not just reading the articles. I have this habit of searching for images and looking at images more that I'm actually reading and collect them and archive them and I'm obsessively just looking at the images it's just a process for me to digest and also react just like sit there and think about them and think about the reality of them it's self-torturing but I can't (laughs) I don't know, I see a lot of kinship in the image. There's a lot of before and after in my mind that I need to think about and I need to process and I need to mourn also as I'm looking at them. And then as I'm reading, there is that reflection also on what is the material that I'm reading. I pick on (laughs) words and I pick on the phrases and the way that they are being articulated sometimes i just copy paste them because i think they're ridiculous they're just so they're so dry they're so pointless that i just collect them and i don't know what i'm doing with them you know yeah just it sits there and at some point maybe like six months from that i go back to them and be like okay this is what i'm doing but it comes from consuming
0: yeah it seems like that process of not knowing where you're going, why you're collecting something, why you're attracted to something. The moment it comes together and you're like, aha, (laughs) you know, I know what I'm going to do with this now. Yeah. I feel like sometimes there's certain things that I know that I'm going to do and there's other projects that it's like, where the hell did that come from? You know?
1: And there are some projects that sit there for years and years and years, and you don't know what you're doing with them. I had one of them that's been sitting there for like six, seven years. A few months ago, I figured it out. I was like, "Whoa!" (laughs) (laughs) Wow, lucky you! (laughs) It's one of those projects that um, is almost impossible, I think, or maybe not. But I want to make a public monument, an anti-war public monument. do you want to know what this is
0: oh you you know what it is or it's just i thought it was just an ambition but you actually have a
1: i think yeah go for it all the pieces together and i know what this is now i mean i'm at the very beginning of knowing what this is but i guess like it needs another year of research to actually completely put it together but it's a combination of different ideas one is the idea of melting down army gear, the reconstruction of the material of a monument or a material that has a different purpose to another thing as a reference. And this has a long history. We all know about them with the ancient monuments in different wars, melting down the bronze, recreating a different monument. But also, I don't know how true this is, but on Machia in his book, The Monument, He talks about when U.S. troops toppled Saddam Hussein Monument, they shipped it back to the United States, and they melted down to make medals to give to the troops who fought in that war.
2: Really?
1: I I couldn't find any other information on that. That's the thing that I only found in Karen Markia's book. Hmm. But if it's true or not, I think that's an idea that gives me material. And so I always had the idea of taking U.S. Army gear, melting it down, and use it as my source material to make this anti-war monument. And as I was thinking back on Toppel and different things that I've been reading, there is an article by Peter Moss that he reflects on lessons that we need to learn from the invasion. It's an article on Intercept. And he talks about the momentum. He talks about the toppling of the Ferdosa Square, but in addition to that, he talks about the curation of the media to make that as the momentum, that that becomes the moment of the liberation of Iraq. And how, if we wanted to be inclusive in our narrative of war, that momentum could have been two days earlier that the same Marines gone down a car that was leaving Baghdad through one of the main and the only highways that they had access to in order to exit Baghdad to save themselves. And there's a picture of the car that has gone down with eight bullets on it. And there were six people inside. And it talks about how that could have been the monument of that invasion. So what I like to do is to recast that car mm-hmm. with melted U.S. Army gear. But that's such an anti-monument that I don't think the US likes it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I think it's I think it's great. When you say army gear, you mean
1: I mean gun and tank. That's yeah. also like another reference to that is in Baghdad, in order to enter the city, there are two gates that is called the Ark of Triumph. And mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein actually designed these two gates. So it's two swords that reach and meet each other. And there is the flag, I think, on the top. And there are two hands that are holding those two Mm -hmm. swords. And the two hands are cast from Saddam Hussein's hand. Uh The swords are made from melted Iraqi tanks and guns. And the poles that hold the hand, each pole is made from 2,500 Iranian helmets from the Iranian soldiers who were killed during the war that he collected to make each pole. So, you know, there's a lot of hate and there's a lot of memory. And that monument is something, in my opinion.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) That history of melting and recasting is something that I want to do more research on to look at its history and how it's been used in different contexts to understand what does it mean for me to melt down army tanks and guns to make an anti-war monument
0: yeah just in terms of materiality there's so much content that you could mix in there yeah i've always wanted to make a public monument made of nuclear waste you know you're talking about melting down weapons and there's so much material polluting how do you melt down nuclear warheads and create
1: Art with them. Yeah, I talked to somebody who did work with metal casting. I wanted to know if that's possible. He said that it's going to be challenging because it's different materials.
0: Right, because you can't take aluminum and stainless steel and bronze and mix them all together. Yeah. But that goes into your other project acquired from the above by the present owner of people in Iran collecting U.S. military gear. It's almost like a fetish object. In all of these accounts, everyone's saying, well, the quality is so good. Yeah, I think about that piece a little bit of what I was saying earlier about my interest in Iran and what I didn't know about what was happening. And that kind of sparking this curiosity of like, oh, what is this thing? You know, <laughs> Or if I were to collect some sort of relic that was loaded with Iranian history in the same way that this US military gear is loaded with that context how would i handle that as a subject matter
1: yeah i mean when it comes to the melting when i think about it i'm interested in that melting but to the extent that it's working but also like it's about the idea of that i mean it could be executed but to what extent it's being executed that's the technicality and the reality of that but The idea of the recycling and making something that is against itself, that's the point. And the rest of it is just the logistics of working with that material and what is doable and what is not doable.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of examples of that on the tip of my tongue, but I can't come up with any of them. (laughs) For some reason, I'm thinking of that piece in front of the UN, which is a sculpture of a gun with the barrel twisted into a knot. I don't know why I'm thinking that was made out of melted handguns. It probably wasn't, but that comes to mind as a possible example.
1: I don't know much examples.
0: (laughs) No, it sounds like a good idea. Uh, All right, well, I don't know if you have any last nuggets, acorns, tree.
1: This is it. I don't
0: know. This is great to go through a bunch of stuff and a little bit of your background and how it all melts together.
1: <laughs> yeah thanks for taking the time looking at my work and coming up with questions to have a conversation that's <laughs> <it's> fun <laughs>
0: Yeah well that's just a beginning.
1: Cool Thank you David.
0: All right thank you for sharing so much. for listening to the napping wizard sessions listen again for something else